You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 9th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Violent Bolsonaro supporters storm the heart of Brazilian democracy. North American leaders meet to discuss their continental issues. And six and a half years later, has the UK actually had any Brexit dividends? I'm Vincent McAvinney. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Joining me today in the studio are Julie Norman, lecturer in politics and international relations and co-director of the Centre of US Politics at UCL, and by Quentin Peel, associate fellow for the Europe programme at Chatham House. We'll also be discussing the controversial Republika Srpska Day in Bosnia, which has drawn international condemnation, and we'll be hearing how e-bikes could disrupt how we view transit in our cities. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Well, this is the Monocle Daily, and I'm Vincent McAvinney. Julie Norman and Quentin Peel, thank you very much for joining us today. We're nine days into 2023 now. It's the first full week of the year. Any signs it's going to be a better one, do you think, so far? Well, we were just talking before about how we stay awake awake all night thinking how grim the news is these days, but we're hoping for better things. I'm hoping we're getting some of the worst stuff out early, so we'll see. Yeah, I mean start of the year and already political violence it's uh, it's not the best is it um well that is where we're going to start properly now in brazil Well, on Sunday, thousands of former President Jair Bolsonaro's supporters stormed government buildings housing the Supreme Court, Congress and President's residence in Brasilia. Security forces have so far detained 1,200 rioters who believe the election was stolen. Where have we heard that one before? Well, also joining us in the studio for this is Fernando Augusto Pacheco, our senior correspondent who has just returned from Brazil. Um, Fernando, if I can just ask you first, you spent a few weeks at home in Brazil, you were there for the elections last year, you landed in Heathrow this morning, take your phone off flight mode and discover what's happened. Were you surprised at all? Well, not 100% surprised. Of course, it's still shocking to see the Congress of your country being invaded. But there was an expectation that this would happen at, at some point. I was in Brasilia, actually, late December. Uh, you know, I didn't see any violence. There was a climate of tension in the air because there are some camps of Bolsonaristas, you know, around the city. And I mean, they were kind of quiet, so I know there was the city was heavily policed, and I think that's why nothing happened during Lula's inauguration, which was fairly peaceful. Uh, but, you know, at some point, they were still there. Um, and, and it was interesting that how the police and the authorities in Brasilia allowed them, you know, to cause such damage, because there was an expectation. And I think that's the difference between the, the Brazilian invasion and the capital, because I think... The capital was a genuine surprise in a way. I think not many people were expecting that. And in Brazil, I think since Lula won, uh, you know, everybody knew that something would happen. Mm. And it happened uh, on the 8th of January. So why do you think this happened now? Was it because maybe the security was scaled down a bit because they thought, well, the inauguration has happened? Uh, and has there been any reaction today from Bolsonaro himself? Yeah, Bolsonaro, he condemned the invasion, but, you know, in not, in not very strong words, to be honest. 
And by the way, I do have to update here that Bolsonaro, he's just being checked in in a hospital uh, in the US. He was feeling strong abdominal pains. I mean, it's interesting that, uh, I mean, there's just rumors around the press as well that every time something happens, you know, Bolsonaro, he goes to the hospital or something like that. But that's just kind of rumors uh, at the moment. And I think what in the next days, what we will see, I mean, a lot of people from the Brasilia, from Brasilia, including the Secretary of Public Security, people have to investigate why they haven't do anything. You know, for example, apparently uh, the secretary that I just mentioned, he said, well, the they are peaceful protesters, so why should we do anything? And, and look what they did. Mm. Even the governor of Brazilian himself, he's been removed from the post for 90 days by one of our Supreme Court judges uh, because of his inaction uh, when, you know, with the protests. So there'll be a lot of investigation. I mean, what's the connection between the armed forces and the protesters as well? I think that's the big questions in the front for the next days. Mm. Um, Julie, if I can bring you in now to give a wider geopolitical context to this, how have nations and world leaders reacted? Sure. Well, obviously, we've seen a lot of, uh, I think, shock from around the world. I think maybe people in Brazil maybe saw this coming a bit more. Um, but and, and of course, condemnation from from all over as well. Um, obviously, from the US, uh, you know, a lot of parallels to January 6th. And I think a lot of concerns about not only what's happening in Brazil, but what this means for democracy moving forward, for kind of this climate of political violence moving forward. So we've heard a lot of expressions of, um, of, of dismay with what's happening and uh, support for Lula and uh, trying to uh, get things calm again and figure out what happened and what needs to happen next. Mm. Um, and Quentin, we've just heard that Bolsonaro himself has checked himself into hospital, but how has the sort of international far-right, alt-right movement been reacting to this? Well, uh, I think that there's a degree of embarrassment that, that, that it, it just looks a little bit blatant the way that the playbook of January the 6th in Washington seems to have been copied in, in Brazil. And uh, it, it's, it's I, I think, too obvious. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is that uh, not the far right, but uh, the rest of the world really did welcome Lula's victory, particularly because of climate change. Mm. That was the, the thing that the rest of the world didn't like Bolsonaro for. Not his populism, but the fact that he didn't care about the Amazon. And I think that the, 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 there was real enthusiasm for, for Lula coming back to power. So it's against that as well. It sort of damages Brazil's reputation internationally. And if I may uh, say what Quentin was saying, that the world welcomed Lula's victory. I mean... I'm shocked myself. I mean, there's been strong global condemnation from Vladimir Putin, from Modi, Macron. I mean, it's really vast. Mm. I mean, I, so I not didn't... just the usual suspects. Exactly. Yeah. So th this is quite an interesting one. Mm. Um, and Julie, Brazil is a country which struggled, of course, for many years under dictatorship in the last uh, century. How fragile is their democracy right now? Oh, well, I'd maybe defer to Fernando on this one. But um, I would say, you know, obviously we've seen uh, a lot of shakeups in the last uh, decade or so, not only Bolsonaro's term, but the fact that um, Lulu served, uh, you know, a year in prison, but then that was annulled. Like there's been just a lot of back and forth over this last decade um, and a lot of, uh, I would say, economic movement too during that time. So I think people were looking to this time. Again, Lulu is back in power. The world was excited around climate change and other, other, uh, other areas. 
the sense of would this kind of get Brazil back on track after the um, you know, somewhat worrisome Bolsonaro years and uh, the fact that it's starting out this way is certainly concerning but certainly isn't um, doesn't mean the, the demise of democracy in Brazil in any, in any way, shape or form either. It just means uh, it's facing some of the same challenges that we've seen in other parts of the world. Mm. And Quentin, just to pick up on your point, you said many world leaders welcome the return of Lula, but what can the international community do to support him now? And do you think we might see a step up in support, possibly visits from other foreign leaders to try and kind of assure his place? Certainly, that, that, that's a possibility. I mean, I think that the key that people will try and underline is not so much the personality as the institutions, because these demonstrators went for the institutions. They went mm. for the Congress, they went for the presidential palace, and indeed the Supreme Court. So, and, and it's it's really underlining the fact that without those institutions, democracy doesn't work. Um, so I think that that's what people will try and do. And yes, indeed, I'm sure that they will, to a degree, try and welcome Lula. Although, you know, those who uh, belong to the right or the centre right may be a little embarrassed. He's got quite a reputation on the left. <laughs> um, and uh, Fernando, if I can just come uh, back to you, there are obvious parallels we mentioned with January the 6th, the attack on the Capitol. Uh, but what was it like to kind of watch this full frontal assault on democracy in your country? And just the general mood in Brazil. I mean, it's been quite a tumultuous time with the passing of Pele, for instance, as well. You know, there can be a kind of thinking even of the UK last year, political turmoil and then the Queen passing. There can be a very strange kind of vibe in the air and it kind of creates a, a tension. It, it really saddens me because actually the inauguration of Lula, I think, was fairly successful. Uh, even the fact that Bolsonaro was not there actually made it for a, a you know a better ceremony, uh, in my opinion. But I mean, if you go to Brasilia, I was there in December. It's a really stunning city with amazing public buildings, and that's what really saddens me because there's been quite a lot of damage uh, from the inside of the Congress because we had amazing artwork by really renowned Brazilian artists. We have uh, this painting as mulatas by Di Cavalcanti, I mean, was really damaged. And so there'll be a lot of work and a lot of kind of public money as well to recover everything. So there's also this side uh, of things. There's, there's been a completely disrespect uh, towards, as Quentin was saying, the institutions. Uh, what I have to say, although the before uh, the attack, I mean, there's been many problems, many questions, but I do think now the situation is under control. There's been a lot of arrests. Uh, Lula uh, put the city under federal intervention until the end of the month. So it seems the situation is under control now, but we have to wait and see because it, it is quite unpredictable uh, at this stage. And it does raise a question as well that some sites like this, where there has been political violence or uprisings, revolutions, they don't actually restore the buildings back to their previous form because it's an idea that you sort of keep the scars to show that as a symbol kind of democracy needs to be defended or this can happen do you think that perhaps they restore it as much as possible but some of it maybe they kind of keep as a sign for the future yeah I mean we have to wait and see for example the painting it would be a terrible shame but uh, yeah we have we have to see because I think and that's what I saw a lot of workers cleaning up the space and that's what people say you know they come and invade and they cause this destruction but then there'll be a lot of people actually working uh, to restore this beauty because I do think it's a state of art uh, beauty as well. Mm -hmm. Well, Fernando, thank you very much for joining us. We'll have more from our panel right after this.
Well, turning our attention to North America now, the leaders of the US, Canada and Mexico are meeting in Mexico for a two-day summit. Macron, Trudeau and Obrador have already put out a joint statement on Brazil saying they stand with the country. Uh, but Julie, what are the main topics the three leaders are going to be focusing on? Yeah, so there's a number of things on the agenda and some that have, I think, been in the headlines even in the week leading up to this summit have, of course, been migration on the southern border between the US and uh, Mexico and also drug trafficking. But I think what will really take center stage is economic issues and the trade relations between uh, between these three countries, especially as the U.S. in particular looks to kind of move their supply chains away from China. They're looking to reorient those again in North America, most likely in Mexico. There's a lot of possibility for increased trade revenue from Mexico. It would help the U.S. a lot and by association Canada a lot as well. So I think we're going to see most of the conversations there, even though, of course, uh, migration and some of these other um, more social issues will also to be on the background. And Quentin, what are the relations like between these three nations and the three leaders specifically at the moment? You know, what really strikes me is that it's nine years since a US president actually went to Mexico. I find that stunning. Mm. I mean, this is an important relationship. And, and a country which has been the heart of political discourse in America yeah. as well, between Absolutely. one way or another. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, Trump himself was didn't care and he didn't. So, so that was a gap. But, it, it, you know, since uh, Obama, we haven't had a president go there. 2014, I think it was. And uh, so that's pretty remarkable. I think that the danger is they sort of take each other for granted a bit too much, or they don't actually really sit down and try and work things out together. And if this is the beginning of a slightly new direction here, um, I I was quite amused to to see um, the Canadian comment about, you know, what have they got in for the, well, we just want to still be at the table, really. (laughs) But clearly it is primarily a sort of US-Mexico thing on drugs, on on migration above all, where both have made gestures to each other to get their act together. So from that point of view, it's actually potentially quite positive. Mm. And Julie, I mean, as as just mentioned there, it's unusual actually that Biden hasn't been to Mexico yet in his presidency. Obviously, the first period uh, was sort of dominated by the pandemic. There were travel restrictions, but it normally is a a trip to a neighbour north or south of the border that's the first visit. So has that been seen as a bit of a snub that in, in maybe the year or so that he could have now travelled he hasn't been uh, and how's it being seen in the region as well? Well I'd say it's definitely seen as important that he's going there now I mean I do think he had enough of a, a, a reason because of COVID um, also simply because the southern border is such a third rail in American politics uh, not only on the right but on the left as well it's very difficult for Biden to hit any right note there that's going to satisfy any kind of side of the country um, and also to get to your previous question to you know Biden and uh, Lopez Obrador have, I would say, maybe not a cool relationship, but not a warm one either. So they they aren't, uh, you know, backslapping buddies the way Biden uh, often is with other world leaders. And so I think that personal distance, I think the fact that... What's the root of that? Um, different reasons. I believe that Obrador was um, pretty slow to um, both recognize and congratulate Biden's win. I don't think he did so until um, after the inauguration. So he uh, wasn't uh, backing Trump, but at the same time wasn't uh, really going out of his way to uh, to acknowledge the election either. So um, he also uh, chose not to come to the Summit of the Americas that or the um, Summit for Democracy that um, that Biden organized last year when several other Latin American countries were left out. So so there's been a few um, uh, mini 
snubs, I would say, in the background that have left that relationship a little bit cooler than they sometimes may have wanted in the past. Mm. Um, and Quentin, when it comes to the border, both for sort of drug traffic and immigration, this is a potential weakness in the eyes of the electorate for Biden if he decides to run again next year. Um, is he needing to play to a home audience in these talks or is he going to actually properly engage? Well, I think both. I think that he needs to properly engage and that will play to a, a home audience. It's the one migration is clearly the issue on which the Republicans think they've got mileage and they can really go for him. So if he can prove that actually in this quite interesting combination of a both tough policy on sending migrants back if they're illegal migrants, but doing that at the same time as accepting more in if they're legal migrants, Mm. and quite significant numbers, you're talking 30,000 a month, which is not insignificant numbers, and if that works, as it seems to have worked recently with Venezuela, maybe that'll help him. Mm. And, you know, watching these kind of summits, the personal relationships can be important. Looking north of the border, I mean, Trudeau and Biden, there's not much between them, is there? But where are the kind of rubs when it comes to trade? Yeah, so um, there's, uh, you know, always some concerns there. I think Canada is the fourth uh, largest trading partner for the US. Uh, and some of the by uh, America first kind of uh, uh, priorities for Biden have rubbed both neighbors the wrong way. Uh, even some of the more recent legislation that even Europe has kind of bristled at around electric vehicles, things that will give extra kind of boosts to uh, U.S. uh, producers. Some of these are things that both Canada and Mexico are saying like, hey, wait a minute, if we're going to have this, uh, you know, continental trade pact, we can't have protectionism going on in the continent. And of course, they each have their different items. But for the U.S. right now, energy and and EVs is is where some of that's uh, where some of that um, is rubbing right now. And it will be fascinating to see, as you mentioned, that, you know, supply chains being moved out of China. I think Dell the other day came out and said they didn't want any of their chips made in China anymore. Apple looking at setting up shop in India. You think some of that industry actually could go to Mexico and South America if you uh, kind uh, of shift that industry there. It, it, it is going flow. already. I mean, yeah. there's been an extraordinary surge in, in trade with Mexico just in, in recent times. So uh, that's a, a, another positive aspect to making the relationship work better if they can make it work better at a personal level. Well, we're going to cross to Europe now and specifically to Bosnia, where Serbs are celebrating the controversial Republika Srpska Day, marking the 31st anniversary of the Republika Srpska's entity's founding, despite a court ban. This year, it will be held in East Sarajevo, from where Bosnian Serb forces carry out, carried out a siege of Bosnia's capital in the 1990s. Joining us is our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delorny. Um, Guy, what does this day involve exactly? Well, it's involved a parade as being the main thing that people have been watching today. Uh, Every time we have this celebration, we see uh, the Republika Srpska authorities put on, in essence, a show of force. So today we had, uh, you know, the special forces police toting their rifles, um, walking down the streets of East Sarajevo. Um, There were also some less welcome people there, including a a couple of dozen members of the Night Wolves uh, motorbike club who are well known for their connections to Vladimir Putin, for example. Um, so that's the sort of thing we've been seeing. Now, it's worth saying that, of course, special forces police in Republika Srpska are perfectly legitimate, um, but it's the sensitivities we're talking about here. When you're holding this event in East Sarajevo, uh, which is the first time it's being held there this year, you are, in essence, uh, triggering people's memories of that siege of Sarajevo. Um, the, in, in previous years, we've seen this event being held in Banja Luka, which is the largest city in Republika Srpska. 
upskirts, so it does rather look like holding it in East Sarajevo is a bit of a provocation. And the day was declared illegal and unconstitutional by Bosnia and Herzegovina's constitutional court back in November 2015. So why is it still being allowed to go on? Because Republic of Serbska ignores that, that court order. It's as simple as that. And uh, you've had everybody from the International High Representative Christian Schmidt through to the embassies of the United States, United Kingdom and the European Union, and indeed the European Union's uh, High Representative for Foreign Policy, all condemning Republic of Serbska for going ahead with this, uh, the, with this celebration despite the ban by the Constitutional Court. It's worth mentioning the reason the Constitutional Court banned it. It's not because it doesn't want Republic of Serbska to have a day to celebrate itself, but rather the day which it's chosen to do so. Uh, the 9th of January 1992 was, in essence, a declaration of intent to secede uh, by the ethnic Serb leaders, the Bosnian Serb leaders of the time. It's also largely viewed by the non-Serb uh, um, people in Bosnia as the start of the campaign of ethnic cleansing and the start of the conflict proper in Bosnia, in which more than 100,000 people died. And the leadership of Republika Srpska continues to glorify uh, convicted war criminals. Um, are days like this important for them, though, to try and lure in the next generation? I was really struck, uh, you know, not direct comparisons, but I was in Northern Ireland uh, last year and, and talking to people on both sides, and they were talking about targeting, particularly via social media, of young people to try and get them into the old conflicts. Is that something that goes on? Yeah, sure, it goes on. And you, you see this happening. But then again, you also see young people pushing back as well. I think a good example of that would be uh, the, the two schools under one roof um, phenomenon, which we see in some places in Bosnia and Herzegovina, where they split children by ethnicity and teach them completely different curriculums. So people are learning different kinds of history and in many cases being uh, taught, in essence, to, if not uh, hate, then at least suspect their neighbours. Well, we've seen students pushing back against this in various places and saying, no, we want to be taught together. Um, other young people are, are voting with their feet. There are tens of thousands of young people leaving Bosnia and Herzegovina every year, which is rather depressing. But the, the current UN population estimates suggest that by the end of the century, there won't be many people in Bosnia left. And just finally, uh, they've given out a special award to a certain leader who hasn't been picking up many of these of late, and that's drawn condemnation from Brussels. What's this all about? This is the Order of Republika Srpska Award, and that's gone to Vladimir Putin. And this was uh, announced by Milorad Dodik, the senior ethnic Serb leader and the current president of Republika Srpska, um, who likes to style himself as a big mate of Vlada. And he's uh, forever popping over to Moscow and boasts that he's got a very good phone relationship uh, with Mr. Putin. Um, as you say, this hasn't gone down well elsewhere at all. Um, you know, the European Union, UK, US, all condemning this and the EU saying we're going to find things that we can do to sanction Mr Dodik uh, after he's done this. Mm. And Quentin, just to bring you in on this day. I'd like to ask a, a quick question. There's been quite a lot of young Russians coming to Serbia uh, to escape the conscription in to go and fight in Ukraine. Is that changing the, the conversation or, uh, at all in Serbia? Are they having an effect? 
I think it's very interesting that the, the, the young people who are coming to, to Serbia are not sort of fitting in with the, the, the narrative that people, a lot of people see of Serbia being the little brother of Russia and just slavishly following everything that Russia does. Of course, the Russians who are ending up in, in, in Belgrade, a lot of them um, don't want anything to do with Vladimir Putin. And they're ashamed of what's going on with the invasion of Ukraine. So it's going to be very interesting when those young people meet other young people in Belgrade and exchange experiences with them. I have to say, Belgrade, it, again, these, these things aren't monolithic, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, the, the, the narrative that's always posted about Serbia in terms of it slavishly following Russia just simply isn't true. There are many Serbians who are quite aware that Russia hasn't really been very good as an ally down the years and that they'd be better off uh, pointing their affections in other directions. Guy, thank you very much. That was Monocle's Balkans correspondent, Guy Delorney. Well, to the other side of Europe now, six and a half years on from the referendum, a new poll has found a growing number of Conservative Party voters are losing faith in the idea of Brexit benefits and opportunities. One in three Tory voters now believe Brexit has created more problems than it has solved. In the wider electorate, that's risen to 57%. Um, So, Julie, many in the Conservative Party, including the current Prime Minister, promised a golden age for global Britain in the sunlit uplands. False promises or did something Thing go really wrong along the way. I, I think maybe both things can be true. I mean, I, I do say I, I can say um, you know, for for those who did vote for Brexit, we you know, you would not have expected a pandemic or the war in Ukraine or even um, you know the Liz Trust like budget debacle and whatnot. So a lot of other things I think have happened also that affected the economy. But with that said, um, you know a lot of the writing was there on the wall for the um, nearly half the country who voted against Brexit. And I think what you're seeing now too is just a rift in the conservative. Party here, but just a lot of conservative parties between kind of the populist side that voted more on the immigration and whatnot, and then the pro-business side. And I think the pro-business case for Brexit, whatever that used to be, that has definitely fallen flat. And I think that side of the party in particular is saying, well, we kind of got a raw deal here. Mm. But it's both sides, in fact, because it's the hardliners as well who say, hang on, you're not delivering the real um, liberation that we were told we were going to get, and and therefore you must do more. So it's the it's the John Redwoods, it's the Jacob Rees-Mogg's, it's the hardline pro-Brexiters who are also actually saying, we ain't got it. But- and. You know, person you mentioned that Jacob Rees-Mogg, at one point he was Minister for Brexit Opportunities and even put out a public call for people to give him some ideas for what Britain to do. Um, have there actually been any discovered opportunities that we didn't have in May 2016? These people, you know, these people were actually in government, uh, the hard Brexiteers under Boris Johnson, some of them under Liz Truss, some still now under Rishi Sunak. So if they're not delivering, isn't it their fault? Very thin pickings. It's absolutely true. What did they get on fisheries? What did they get on agriculture? What did they get on, on migration? I mean, migration is now, immigration is now higher than it was. Um, so all of those things have fallen flat. And is the biggest maybe legacy now going to be of Brexit that potentially, if you read the polls and believe them, the Conservative Party could be facing its worst ever election defeat next year? Well, it's certainly looking that way. I mean, uh, I, I think Quinton might have more to, to weigh in on there, but it certainly um, it certainly doesn't look good and it hasn't looked good for a while. I mean, I think that's one reason why Sunak has kind of been keeping his head low, as it were, and is just starting to kind of come out on some of the labor issues and whatnot. But there's there's not a lot of good news right now. Uh, you know, I think labor is not super strong either, but they'd be better positioned than Tories going into another election anytime soon. And it's it was- an insane situation, isn't it, where both of them are saying, oh, 
We won't talk about anything except Brexit. Mustn't talk about Brexit. Mm. All this will upset people and so on. This is, go back to where we started this conversation in Brazil. The division that's been created, the bitterness that's still there is actually very deep. But I did think it was fascinating, and both of you in this, the the leader's speeches last week launching their sort of 2023. He had Rishi Sunak getting up, making five promises. He just looked very sheepish. It was very dull. Uh, and then you had Keir Starmer the next day getting up, and he decided to reclaim the take back control slogan. What did you make of that? Yeah, I think there's something to be said with trying to kind of uh, repurpose words that used to be used in a different way. So that's that's not something that's unprecedented. But that decision in particular was an odd one. And I agree with Quentin. It seems especially at this moment when Labour has this almost um, like passive momentum just because the Tories are kind of driving themselves into the ground. Why would you nod to that kind of slogan when you're trying to take the country somewhere different? Mm. And coming up this year, just to look ahead, final points on this, there is potentially a bonfire of the EU legislation. It, it's unclear whether it will get through Parliament. But I mean, the unions are warning and already the government is at, at loggerheads with unions over industrial action that it could see the legislation being binned for things like uh, paternity leave, maternity leave, you know, all of the benefits that the UK got under the European Union. Do you think that there's a real threat in this country? Could this government say, actually, fine, we'll give it one last big Brexit push, we'll scrap, we'll cut sort of workers' rights. Is that going to come? I think it would be insane. It's going to completely clog up the bureaucracy and the civil service and get rid of things, the sort of things you mentioned, which are thoroughly positive. So I think that really would be a stupid move. And I suspect that at the base, Rishi Sunak actually realises, don't do these sort of silly things. This is purely ideological. Yeah, especially at this moment when labour itself is so strong and we see strikes in pretty much every sector. I just can't imagine going down that route with any kind of political hope. Well, uh, Julie, Norman and Quentin Peel, thank you very much uh, for joining us to stay right there. Uh, finally, on today's show here at Monocle, we always like to take a look at the future of mobility and the impact on the way we move around can have on our cities. Cowboy is an electric bike brand built for urban riders, and it wants to disrupt how we view transit in cities with high tech and a simple design helping to encourage people to adopt two wheels. Monocle's Ed Stoker met the brand's co-founder, Tanji Goretti, and Asked how Cowboy stands out in an already saturated market. I really believe we have a unique product on the market. We have the product, but we also have the servicing, meaning that it's really difficult for the competition to copy us. And I believe if you look at the design of the Cowboy today, this is really why our customers they buy the bike. There is no other bike like that on the market. And then we really try to have the best customer experience. So we invest a lot in on-demand technicians so we can come to your place and fix the bike for you. You can also try the bike if you want in any cities in Europe, but also in the US. And all of that makes us quite unique out there. Is some of that in a way partly modeled on a sort of car experience you have when buying it and the fact that if something goes wrong, someone comes? Just delve a bit more into that because it sounds like quite an interesting way to market a bicycle, I guess. The starting point was that our customers, most of the time, it's the first time to buy a bike or an e-bike and so they have no idea on how to change a flat tire for instance and they don't want to bother they just want to have a like a quick solution on average they're using the bike 27 times a month so if the bike doesn't work for them it's a nightmare it's going to be a nightmare for us as well because we complain a lot and that's why we had to build that service and it's completely integrated into the app so you just open the app and in 30 seconds you can book an appointment and then in three days you have someone coming to your place and that's it that I have whatever. a bike at home yeah. that has a flat tire so maybe I need <laughs> I need your services <laughs> you have to buy a cowboy first I have to buy a cowboy a small detail let's talk 
talk about sort of price point and things like that. How competitive is the pricing? Are you looking to amend the pricing in the future? Because obviously e-bikes, if you look at them compared to conventional bikes, still are a lot more expensive. So how do you tackle those issues? I think the discussion on the budget should be that this is the main vehicle that you would use in the city and so it will replace public transport it will replace like your car and so it's not that expensive in that view the price of the bike today is 2,800 euros it might go down it might go up we don't really know it will also depend on the on the market but we don't want to compromise on the product itself so if this is the right price for the product that we have we'll stay at that high end price today yeah. and where are you available at the moment what markets are you and I guess you know on top of that you are therefore able to provide all these services in those countries so where are you so we, we're selling in 11 countries in Europe. Our key market is basically Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, France, and the UK. And we've just started to sell in the US. We've delivered our first bikes in cities like New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco. So super exciting. And we can also service the bike in the US. The only difference is that in the US, we will have people by car coming to your place because it's just too big. In Europe, it's uh, mostly by bike, so on a cowboy bike, obviously. You were just talking, obviously, on a panel. And one of the things that stood out to me was the fact you said sustainability is great or, you know, the fact that it's electric, etc. But simply put, and I'm paraphrasing you slightly, this is the best way to get from A to B in a city. So is that a new way of looking at e-bikes in a way? Is it, do you think it's been marketed the wrong way sometimes before? It wasn't seen as something cool to be on e-bike because 80% of the buyers, they were like above 50 years old. But then it kind of became cool with companies like Cowboy and others because from a design point of view, it's completely different. It's like an iPhone, like it's really like a computer on wheel. Uh, the Cowboy today, you have plenty of electronics inside. Uh, you don't have visible welding, like everything is hidden. We have like a lot of attention to the details. It's connected, it's a tech product, and it's also complete peace of mind. So you don't need to think about the maintenance or whatever, like you know it's a bike, it's just gonna work and whatever the issue you have will be there to solve it for you. And when you have all of that, then it's just the best way to move from A to B. And we believe this is that kind of product that you need to put on the market to really have a mass adoption. Like if you have shitty e-bikes, people will not want to buy them. So the only way to change that is to have better product on the market. This idea that it's a complex, if you like, product in the sense, like you mentioned, it has lots of technology within it, but it also has in a way a simple beauty to the aesthetic maybe you can talk about that sort of dual role it doesn't look like it's too tacky yeah. and yet obviously it is because it has all these functions it is tacky but we don't want the tech to be in the way so um, if you don't want to use the application you can just keep the phone in your pocket and as soon as you remove the bike the bike will turn on automatically so you don't have any button on the bikes it's fully automatic via bluetooth and then when you want to go faster on the bike you just push harder on the pedal and you will get the right amount of assistance so it means that you don't have any gears you don't have any level of assistance, any button on the handlebar, like everything is fully automatic and that vision of simplicity was really key in everything that we do at Cowboy and that's why you have those lines, it's super simple, super nice to the eye and it's also super nice to use. Let's talk a little bit about these functions that it has. So you push down on the pedal, if you're going up a hill and struggling a bit, you push harder down on the pedal and it gives you more assistance. More power. And what, what top speed are we talking about on these things? You can go up to 25 kilometers per hour with the motor, but then if you have good legs, you can go up to 35 kilometers per hour. And what's easily. the sort of regulation? Are there rules regulation in cities for speed, etc.? Yeah. So it's in Europe, it's 25, and then in the US it's different. It's state by state, most of the time it's like 25 miles per hour, so you can go a bit faster. 
I also heard you talking about another function, which is this sort of anti-theft mechanism that's obviously super interesting because you have these bikes that are worth money that are in cities around Europe and obviously are at risk of being stolen. So tell me about how you built this system into the bike and how it works. When we started Cowboy, it was really the number one fear of all our customers and so we wanted to have a system to really make sure that you couldn't steal the bike. And that's why you don't have any button on the bike. Today, if you steal a cover, you can't turn the bike on, so you can't resell it. It's useless. On top of that, if you steal it, you will have the cops coming to your place in just 24 hours. And on top of that, we also have a theft insurance. So if you don't recover the bike in the next two weeks, we just ship you a new bike. That's the end of the story. Tanji Goretti there speaking to Ed Stocker. And that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to all my guests today, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Julie Norman, Quentin Peel and Guy Delorney. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Panmintan. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean with editing assistance from Carlotta Rebello. I'm Vincent McAvinney here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>